Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be asking Brian Huschel, what is community college for? Please visit whyradioshow.org for our archives, show notes, and to support the program. Click Donate on the upper right-hand corner to make your tax-deductible donation through the University of North Dakota Secure website. We exist solely on listener contributions. When I was in graduate school, I used to fantasize about which university I would teach at. Pretty much every grad student does. I dreamt about Harvard and Princeton, UC San Diego, and the University of Colorado at Boulder. I imagined lots of time and money for my research and the best students. Like all of my classmates, I wanted to become a superstar. Then I graduated and faced a job market that was so bad, I started fantasizing about where I didn't want to teach instead. I hoped I didn't get a job in the Texas Panhandle or a terrifying neighborhood in Detroit. I prayed I wouldn't be expected to teach five courses per semester and eventually, anxiously, would have taken any job at all. Yet even then... I was still crossing my fingers that I didn't end up in a community college. We've all been taught that there is a hierarchy of schools and that educational institutions can be objectively ranked. We're sold on the idea that the prestige of the place we go to as either student or teacher is a measure of how good we ourselves are. Nothing is further from the truth. In almost all instances, university rankings are a scam. They don't tell you anything definitive about the people who work there. Some of the worst teachers I have met have been from the top colleges. Some of the most unoriginal and cowardly research comes out of the most famous departments. The true purpose of college rankings is to get parents to pay twice as much for their kids' education as they could or should. Nevertheless, it took the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding to see past the condescension that I inherited towards two-year schools. The movie follows Tula, a frumpy 30-year-old woman who has no social life, works in her parents' restaurant, and is, because she is unmarried, dismissed by her family. Eventually, she manipulates her dad into letting her go to school to study computers. In a wonderful but underplayed scene, she finds a workshop that teaches her how to take over her aunt's travel agency. She builds her own self-confidence and gains the courage to sit with the pretty popular girls who ostracized her when she was a kid. Tula eventually falls in love, which of course leads to a big fat Greek wedding, but that's not important at the moment. What is relevant is that when Tula wanted to change her life, she didn't go to Yale or the best college in her city. She went to a community college. She took a single course and it made her life measurably better in every way. I love this movie and I love that scene. And every time I see it, it reminds me of how narrowly defined the student population I teach is. They're mostly 18 to 21 years old. Students over 24 are referred to by the euphemism non-traditional age. Most of mine are straight out of high school or in school full-time, have a parent or parents who pay their tuition, are not the first students in their family to go to college, and have to meet minimum academic standards. Few of them have children of their own, and while many have had their share of difficulties, there is a certain predictability about what my classes will look like each semester. We've plucked out a specific kind of student from all over the upper Midwest and deposited them onto our campus. The University of North Dakota serves a region, but Northland Community and Technical College down the road serves a community. What puzzles me, and the question that inspires this episode, is why a school like mine automatically gets more respect than our local community college. 
I find strange the presumption that my students work harder and are more desirable. It is, after all, infinitely more difficult to enter a classroom a decade out of school or as a returning veteran or as a single parent than it is to trust the inertia from high school. I don't want to diminish my own students' accomplishments. Many of them work very hard and are seriously impressive. I'm really lucky to be where I am. But there is something equally, if not more remarkable, about getting a two-year associate's degree during your second or third time at bat than there is about getting a BA by the time you're 22. I guess the point is that it's probably not a good idea to compare two- and four-year schools at all. One isn't better or worse. They just serve different populations and different purposes. We do need, however, to challenge the university hierarchy itself. There are no doubt bad schools, but the real question students and parents should be asking is not whether someplace is the best, but whether it's one of the right ones for them. This involves rethinking how we define college, who gets to be a student, and questioning the purpose of learning. It necessitates asking whether education and training are really two different things, if everyone needs a full liberal arts education, and how important colleges are for upward mobility. Does our society have a moral obligation to offer everyone a second or even third chance? Should we build our institutions for the ideal student or modernize them for the complexity of today's world? How much learning needs to take place outside of the classroom? The list of questions could go on. Many of the students at Northland Tech end up going to UND after their two-year degree, yet the two campuses feel like different worlds. Is this really because the students have different abilities, or is it actually that they're from different social and economic classes? Wouldn't it be unfortunate if the real reason we have community colleges is to reinforce an us-versus-them mentality rather than discouraging it? This is why we have the Ivy League, after all, to be able to point out who's on top. You can't identify winners without naming losers. Social division cuts a lot deeper than we'd like to admit. And now our guest. Brian Hushell is Vice President for Academic and Student Affairs at Northland Community and Technical College, has two campuses in East Grand Forks and Thief River Falls, Minnesota. He received his PhD in philosophy at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and spent 19 years in the classroom before moving into administration at Northland Tech. Brian, thanks for joining us on Why. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is always at Y Radio Show. You can always email us at askwhy at und.edu. That's askwhy at und.edu. And listen to our previous episodes for free. Learn more and donate at yradioshow.org. So, Brian, our schools are right down the road from each other, but UND has a much stronger presence in, in the region. I think... This is a very common experience for community colleges. Am I correct in, in having a sense that your school is more invisible in the community and taken for granted? Um, I'm going to say yes and no. I think, um, you know, there's dynamics. There's the size of student body, so there's a presence that way. But um, when we think about the visibility, um, we have two campuses. We have a campus in East Grand Forks and a campus in Thief River Falls. And, of course, East Grand Forks is, in some sense, a sleeper, sleeper community for Grand Forks. And the community college there is a sleeper to the University of North Dakota. Um, but when you go to Thief River Falls, when you're in a small rural town, then that campus becomes very central to the community in a way that we're not in the greater Grand Forks community. I don't think this is unique to two-year colleges, though. I think if you were in a rural community and you have a four-year university, um, my alma mater, University of Minnesota Morris, would fit this description. The campus has a very strong presence in that community. 
And we can see that, you know, throughout public institutions in particular, but there are private universities in small towns as well where that presence is there. And so I think part of that sense is just, you know, different institutions within a single community. But I'm not even sure there about that. If you go to the, you know, Twin Cities, um, there are something like nine two-year community and technical colleges and one university and a smattering of private universities, one public university, one public state university, and then a smattering of public schools. And so there, there's a – people know we're there. Um, our enrollments show that. So before we get into the, the sort of the cultural aspects, one of the great divides – maybe that's not the right way to put it, but one of the great controversies – on many campuses is that the administration sells the university as um, an economic engine, as, as part of the development of the community. Is this the same for the two-year schools? Are they there in part to create jobs, to, 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 to bring resources, or are they – do they hold a different place economically? Um. All higher ed holds that place. <laughs> That's the short answer, right? Right. Um, you know, the the training of the technician level, the um, mechanics, all that. Um, you know, architectural design and t- program, right? We're not training architects, but we're training the people who do the work for the architects. We're, you know, in some sense. And so, um, yeah, we're a part of that economic engine. But we are a comprehensive two-year school. So we offer an associate of arts, which is the transfer degree. And we're training general education the first two years of a bachelor's um, that will transfer seamlessly within the state of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota, the University of North Dakota, and all the North Dakota schools are very good. And so it's both. I want to go back because you said something that was super intriguing. You said we're not training – architects, but we're training the people who do the work for the architects. What does that mean and why is that distinction important? So, you know, the, when we have an architectural design program, for example, it's an associate of applied science. Um, they're taking a minimum of 45 technical credits in architectural design. Um, they are creating blueprints They are creating floor plans for houses, drawing the full blueprint for a house. Um, As an example, they take a modeling class. They build a full model from scratch of a house so that they understand the intricacies of a beam or a support beam in a rafter. Um, Do they – the architect has more advanced skills there, um, would need, I believe, to check off on – that design, that it's architecturally sound. But the students that we train are the ones that are at the drafting table. Of course, it's all done on computer-aided <laughs> software. You know, but, um, but the students we train are the ones doing the day-to-day work for that. So already we've seen two elements, this relationship between architects and the people who, who do work for them and what you call the sort of the seamless uh, transfer degree. This suggests that rather than being discrete institutions, 
your institution, and we'll use that as representative, your institution is entangled with other institutions, that your institution is a feeder, that your institution is support, that your institution provides a foundation. Is the question that I'm asking flawed already? Is it possible to think about two-year schools distinct from four-year schools? Do you have to have them in the same vision? Or can two-year schools be sort of reflected on in and of themselves by their own standards? That's an interesting question. Um, I think – so there are um, programs um, where uh, the degree we offer is the highest degree. Um, you don't transfer to a four-year school. Um, you know, within um, – and there's programs where – there's a seamless blend there. Um, and I'm talking now career programs, not a transfer associate of arts program. And so, um, you know, we have a strong set of um, allied health programs where we train physical therapy assistants, right? They're not the physical therapist. They don't have the same level, the same responsibility, but they are working with people on the exercises. They understand those. They're able to work with the patients on those directly. Um, we also have a respiratory therapy program. And our respiratory therapists are the respiratory therapists that you work with when you go in. There are baccalaureate programs and there are associate programs. We have an associate program. Um, the next degree for them is to get a bachelor's in um, health administration if they want to advance in their career. Um, you, you look at, um, you get into skilled trade areas, um, auto mechanic, uh, carpentry, right? The next program steps for those are often then management or um, process management types of degrees, but they've done what they can in that particular discipline. Um, and so there's ways in which the training is in and of itself, um, but take nursing. We have a practical nursing program and a registered nursing program. Um, we offer an Associates of Science, AS degree in registered nursing. The next step is a bachelor's in registered nursing. It's the same credential. Um, in many instances, the same pay. So someone's going to be listening to your description and they're going to say something like, OK, community colleges are the schools for people who get their hands dirty, <laughs> that the, the four-year schools are more theoretical, the four-year schools uh, – are for leadership, is that unfair? Is that reductive? I think it's a bit unfair and a bit reductive. I can, I'll give a very specific example. But, um, you know, within the business programs, you know, we have computer networking, uh, business, general business, uh, accounting program. Um, in those cases, you know, you take the get, go through the business program. You're doing sales. It might be the same job, um, same pay. Um, is there a view there? Um, you said something that triggered a memory of mine of sitting at a table um, next to an accounting instructor with a master's degree, and across the table were some um, accounting instructors from a university partner of ours, and we're working through articulation transfer. 
And that just that just means that the bureaucracy is there so things can go from one school to the other. Correct. Okay. And um, they didn't want to – the school didn't want to take our class because our class was taught same number of credits, same learner outcomes, same textbook, same academic credential of a master's degree to teach it. They didn't want to take the course because as a two-year school, we teach it at a 200 level. In their program, it was at a 300 level, junior level. But for a student to finish the program in four years, you'd have to do that transfer. Um, my faculty just about jumped out of their chair when the university partner said, yeah, we know you use the same textbook, but we teach it at a more theoretical level. That, I mean, <laughs> right? Is that just bigotry? I mean, is that, is, that, is that the class structure at work? I would say yes. My immediate response to that is our students probably learn it better because they're learning it in a more applied environment. That's really interesting. So on the pedagogical level, on the level of, of, of teaching method and, and philosophy of teaching, is there more – tendency towards application in a school like yours is is the is would it be more real world oriented more internship oriented more practical or is that just the excuse that these professors used because they wanted to retain power over the other school um i think it can be both okay. i think it was certainly the latter in my experience of teaching, um, one of the things I appreciated as a philosopher, and um, it took me a couple of years, you, you described that graduate student, <laughs> I want to teach at this type of institution, and the community college isn't on that list at first. Um, it took me two or three years of being at Northland teaching um, for me to actually go, you know, actually, I'm where I want to be. And that realization came one day after a class, walking back to my office, and I realized how much I love these students and that they were just like the students at, and in this case, it was at Southern Connecticut State University, which as a state university had a demographic of students, somewhat like a community college. A lot of first-generation students would be the main overlap there. Um, and a lot of a very diverse background of students. But there's another university I taught at, um, and that is the College of St. Mary in Omaha, which is the sister institution in the Jesuit order of Creighton University. It's an all-women's college. And I taught a 400-level, so senior-level ethics class there, to a room full of women, most of them studying to be nurses. And in every one of these cases, what the students, what those learners needed most and wanted most was that application. To put it another way, um, as I was at Creighton, it actually occurred to me that these students are in here. These women are in here because they're going into healthcare, and they actually think they're here to learn something they're going to use. And as a philosopher used to playing in the theoretical realm, having a class full of stu students, nurses, respiratory therapists, looking at you because you're teaching something that's relevant to their career is a responsibility, and it overlaps that question, and it's why I fell in love with those students. 
It makes me think of the time I taught at uh, Jersey City State, which was a four-year school, but in Jersey City, uh, a poor city, it was allegedly the most diverse college campus in the country. A lot of working class kids, a lot of foreign students. Uh, It was really, I mean, it was an incredible experience. And on the first day, I told them, because this is the kind of teacher I am, I'm a horrible person. I told them, I'm going to use the same syllabus I I use for all the other schools. But everyone has told me that you won't be able to do it, that I have to do a different syllabus. I have to do an easier class for you guys. And they were so offended. And they were so upset, not by what I said, but by what everyone else said, that they worked so incredibly hard throughout the semester that I don't think I could say anything other than they put full effort into it. And I don't have any recollection of them doing worse than anyone else. I don't have any recollection of any negativity. I only have positive memories of my relationships with the students. Is this analogous to the kind of thing you're talking about as well? Is there a sense, a false sense that, that you know, the, the sister institution, the, pay, the, the, the partner institution was teaching on a 300 level and you teach it on 200 level and that's because ultimately your students just aren't quite as good. Is that something that you face and is it, again, I'll, I'll, use, I'll probably use this word a lot, is that unfair? Um, I think it's, Part of the challenge there. Regardless of individuals and their personal views, there's institutions involved. And so, for example, to get a bachelor's degree, you have to have a certain number of credits at the junior and senior level. And so there's very, within that institutional structure, which may not be fair, there's legitimate concerns those faculty would have about if they take this course that's not at a junior level, they have to have something else in that curriculum for the student that is at that level. And so in the end, the student may end up taking the same number of extra credits just to graduate. Um, So there's an institutional structure that undermines that. So I don't want to pin it all just on individuals, um, and that's not to say anything's fair any more fair. Um, I think part of the point with that example I give with the accounting instructor is to um, bring out the um, the, – that – Parent view of this, you know, that learner. Um, and one thing I th- will say is the traditional view of higher ed is based on a certain view of what knowledge is. Um, and we can go very theoretical here fast, but, you know, it's a book learning, reading knowledge. It's a visual learner. It's not a kinesthetic learner. Necessarily, and a kinesthetic learner is a learner who, who, who tactile touches. Tactile, right? That's the that's the stereotype. But interestingly, Jack, I am a kinesthetic learner. And when I questioned the professional coach who did the assessment and shared this with me, but I'm a philosopher. How can I be a kinesthetic learner? And the response from her was, "You're a kinesthetic learner in philosophy. You actually like working with the theories and taking them apart." And that clicked for me because as an undergraduate, I chose, I double majored, but I went with philosophy and not English. In English, we did new criticism. I didn't even know we were doing new criticism. (laughs) You just wrote the papers. In philosophy, I was tearing things apart, and that was kinesthetic. 
We have to take a break, but when we come back, I want to dive deeper into this question of what knowledge is and different styles of knowledge. I also want to talk a little bit about institutionalism and the sort of self-consciousness of being in a two-year institution or a four-year institution. But first, you're listening to Brian Huschel and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Brian Huschel from Northland Community and Technical College about two-year colleges, community colleges, their place in the culture, how they relate to four-year colleges, and what it tells us about knowledge and students and all those things. And, and, and when I was thinking about this episode. And when I was thinking about talking to Brian, I kept going back to one of my all-time favorite television shows, which is called Community. And if you haven't seen Community, you should, because it's unbelievably funny. Uh, It takes place in a community college, a four-year community college, which is one of the inside jokes, but but, but a, a, a community college. And the very first thing that the dean says in the very first episode is he gives some sort of speech, messed up speech because it's comedy, to, uh, to the students. And he says, this is a real college. And especially in the first season, he says over and over again, and they say this isn't a real college. And they say this isn't a real college. And, you know, they say this just over and over and over again. And throughout the – now, sitcoms always follow a path and, and the characters always get more absurd and the circumstances get more absurd. But there is throughout the – show this insecurity among the students and that the students are all broken people and only Greendale Community College has a place to fix them. So I guess the first question that I want to ask you is, institutionally, is there this insecurity? Institutionally, does the institution, do the administrators, does the structure, do all the staff do they have this kind of insecurity that is depicted on community or is that just, again, a sort of <laughs> elitist attitude that because I'm, you know, at the University of North Dakota, I have to assume that these people aren't – don't think that they're doing the real thing? Um, I think that if you're talking the staff, the faculty, the administrators, um, none of them think – that they're not doing the real thing. Um, and so, you know, I, to be honest, um, I'm familiar with the show. I watched a few episodes. I thought it was cute. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you know different tastes, right? And, um, <laughs> but and when I think about that, though, um, you know, so it, some of it is 
there perhaps is a cultural perspe- perception there, but at the same time, um, you know, many of the students who come to a college for particular training programs, they're there for the real thing. Um, nurses, they're there for the real thing. The um, aviation maintenance mechanics, the people fixing the engine on the plane you're riding on, are there for the real thing. And so um, I don't, I, I think that there's a tone of that. I also think that many people understand that it's not the, real, the, the way the colleges really are. You said when you started answering that question, the faculty and the staff and the administrators, you didn't say the students. Do the students have the sense that, that they went to this school because they couldn't get into another school? Because that's, again, the characters and community, um, they're all on their second chance, right? But, but there is this sense that when you talk about, you know, even the, the, the kids I know in, in high school in, in, in Grand Forks, the ones who don't think they can, quote unquote, handle university will think about going to Northland Tech. So does that insecurity, does that uh, – I really wish I could remember this phrase that's in my head. Uh, How do the students feel about being there? Um, What I hear from the students is they feel welcomed and they feel like they get a really good education. I think some of that, when you talk about the 17, 18-year-old who's not ready, they could just as easily go down the road to a Maryville State University. What they're looking for in my mind isn't so much the two-year experience as the small college experience. And um, I think that's, that part is certainly fair. Now, there are aspects of this, right? Um, we, are, we, Northland and Minnesota State Colleges, and I think pretty much all community and technical colleges are um, open enrollment. So we don't have a GPA. Oh, you didn't get a 3.0. GPA in high school, you can't be admitted here, right? Um, And so when we say open enrollment, just a high school diploma or GED, you're admitted. Now, within that structure, um, there's a wait list 60 students long for some of our competitive health programs. Um, And you have to have good grades, you have, right, to get into those. Um, And so it's really a mix there. And the school serves that mix, right? Um, We serve the student who... Um, for whatever reasons, maybe it's learning style, because um, in the 90s and 2000s, our K-12 system basically dumped career and technical education. It's starting to rebuild it now. But that left a lot of learners behind, in, in a sense. I think um, the goal was not to leave any behind, if I remember some of the national programs. <laughs> but um, in fact, by focusing on that, a certain pathway of education, um, certain students, certain learners, certain goals didn't fit in. And when you don't fit in culturally to a high school, you don't do well. And so then you're looking for a place where you can do well. And in many cases, that's a community and technical college. Um, we serve a lot of the, um, and these were my favorite students, you call, the, the quote non-traditional students, the non-trads. Um, they were, I have to say, by far my favorite students. I viewed them as the students who had gone to the school of hard knocks for a few years, and they went to, when they decided to settle down and go to college, they knew what they were there for. And because they knew what they were there for, they knew what they wanted to learn in my class. 
I love the older students. Uh, they're, they're focused. They bring a different voice in. They're often very, very nervous. And so they're reluctant to sort of impose their voice on the younger people. But they're in tremendous assets. And I want to go back to this idea of open enrollment because CUNY, the City University of New York, famously for decades and decades and decades, the main campus was open enrollment. And it was also regarded as one of the best universities in the country. So open enrollment doesn't mean that students don't have the intellect or don't have the ability. It means that they somehow don't fit in. I often think of myself in that sense. I mean, our listeners don't know that much about my education history, but I was a terrible student. I got into college uh, under a program called the STAR program, which I later found out stood for student at risk. And it was for uh, a student who had high SATs and low grades, which was me, or a student who had low grades and high, uh, high, I can't even say it, uh, high grades and low SATs. And I never really came into my own until I was working on my dissertation because I have this fundamental problem with authority. And so school never worked for me. It doesn't mean that I, I'd like to think I wasn't dumb, right? I'd like to think I, it's that, that I wasn't prepared. So, so I wonder if you would talk about the challenges of open enrollment and what it's like to teach a group of students from a dozen different perspectives and a dozen different levels at the same time in the same room. It's work. <laughs> um, so let me say, you know, so one of the aspects of that um, and – Again, taking my institution as representative, um, our students of color are over twice what is reflected in our community. Um, and so when I bring that up, um, you know, the city of Grand Forks is a relocation for um, immigrants, particularly Somali New Americans, and we have a large population of them. Now, they have GEDs. They're um, fluent in English to do that. But um, have they passed a certain TOEFL exam score that a university would require to admit a student? TOEFL, TOEFL. Is, the Eng- TOEFL is the English language proficiency exam. And so, thank you, Jack. Yeah. And so <laughs> um, they, they, you know, some of them would, maybe not. But what's really interesting is I can have a native English speaker in that classroom who um, easily writes at a college level, upper college level, and I can have a native speaker in that classroom that maybe is writing below that um, non-native speaker's language because of what they, the experience they had in high school. And I don't look at – it's not even my nature to say they're not smart, right? right. It's just – it's the experience they had. It's where they came from. Um, that might be family support. It might be a school experience. Um, and so – those students sit side by side. And, you know, one of the skills that one develops, and it was through some professional develop, is the type of um, written comments I would give, because I pretty much gave essays to them all, on a um, non-native speaker. I might approach my commenting on that a little bit differently than I would a native speaker to help that person advance their writing skill. And so those are things that, you know, you learn as a teacher. Um, to work across those sections. And at the same time, you're pushing that other, perhaps a more advanced student on the written side to change or advance their thinking, their critical thinking. There's a really interesting philosophical choice in there because many institutions, and I actually think UND is really guilty of this, many institutions will take 
non-native speakers and suggest they don't have the skills, they need remedial work, they're not up to the task, they're not as quote-unquote smart. But it sounds – but if you flip that around, one of the things you know about these non-native speakers is they're speaking two languages. They're often speaking three, four, five languages, right? And so it's, you know, it's, it's not a sign of, of lack of intellect. It's a sign that they haven't yet mastered all of the languages they have to speak when most Americans don't get past you know, the, the sixth grade Spanish, right? And it sounds like your institution has made the philosophical decision to treat the intellect behind the skills more than the skills as an indicator of the intellect. Is that fair? I I think absolutely. Um, You know, as a faculty member and faculty members that I support and work with, um, you're developing the student and you're developing them from where they are. And that may mean a certain focus on writing skills when the thinking skills are there. When you you know, have a non-native speaker, they may be fluent in French and some other native language, and their thinking skills outpace many of the students in the class. And you can see that when you're reading the English and support that development while improving that language use. And so um, really doing that and doing that integrated in the classrooms, um, I think, is a a, a sound approach. Um, You know, there's always a debate, particularly within the English area, particularly, do you want to separate those language learners so you can really focus on them, or do you want them integrated? And, you know, there's challenges there for a small institution. You have to have a large enough group of students to make it work. But the other side of that is it's a real debate as, what, as to which is better. And our students, our second language learners, prefer being in the classroom with their native speakers. Um, if we were, when we surveyed and looked at that type of an approach, the students were where they wanted to be. And so then it's a matter of supporting the faculty to work through that and support the learners. How student-driven is a small institution like yours. And what I mean by that is, again, I'll use UND as an example. My university, we're curriculum-driven. We have all these programs that have to be accredited. And, and, and when my department thinks about its major, yes, we'll think about enrollment for classes, but we don't sit down with students and ask what they want and what they need. But the survey that you you just talked about suggested that maybe your smaller institution, can it be more responsive? Is it more nimble than a larger institution like ours? I think it can be. Um, And again, and I'm just going to highlight that this is not unique to a two-year institution, right? In part, it's the smallness. Um, I think there are ways culturally as far as workforce development training, uh, where maybe two-year schools are more nimble than four-year institutions. Um, and that, that gets into institutional structure, not looking at the student side and student experience. But um, on the student experience side, I think that there's advantages to small schools. And we can look at that student, that 18-year-old, who's not, who self-selects is not ready to sit in a lecture hall of 200 students rather than a lecture hall of 40 or 30, right? And we can judge that student as um, not being ready for the university, or 
maybe we could judge that student as having the self-awareness to know where they can be successful. I, I, I'm, real, I'm processing what you just said because it was super rich. And I guess the question that comes out of it first is what does success mean in this context? Mm. And do you think that a notion of community college or two-year school or a technical college, because I guess one of the questions that comes out of that is when you say community and technical college, are those two different colleges merged? Is that just a rhetorical flourish? Is, 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 what does that signify? But is your definition of success different than, let's say, Harvard or Yale or even UND, not that they should necessarily be in the same sentence. But um, what does success mean for your institution? Um, that's a uh, really rich policy question <laughs> um, without perhaps knowing it. Um, in some sense, any institution that uses in the jargon Title IV, any institution that administers fi- federal financial aid has the same definitions of success because they have to meet certain standards. And that's graduation, right? Um, graduation rates, employment rates, okay. um, retention, completion, right? Those things are all monitored within that. Um, and then the student, the graduate's ability to pay back the loans, what, what that rate is. So those are all things looked at there. And, um, and we're all measured by those. When we talk about college rankings, you know, there's, um, there was a day when um, we were young, I was young, when it was U.S. News and World Reports. You know, now there's Wallet Hub and I, all these different things. I had U.S. News and World Report written in the monologue and then I took it out because I said, Jack, you're old. <laughs> and I don't know that that exists anymore. Sorry, go it on. It does exist. <laughs> okay. But there's so many alongside of it that use so many different metrics and – um, Northland, you, you can look at our web page. You can go to just about any community college and technical college, I suspect, and see where they rank well by different measures. And a lot of those are, um, you know, what is the salary that student is making after graduation for their tuition costs? That, you know, in the business sense, we call that a return on investment. Um, a return on investment for a student going into construction electricity is way higher than many bachelor degrees. Um, home ownership, if we want to mark the American dream culturally, um, home ownership, a two-year degree in the trades is the fastest path to home ownership in North Dakota. And so when we think about these things, um, you know, there's a lot of different values out there. Now, there was a last point I kind of want to make about how we think about success. So, yeah, we struggle with that probably in a way that a four-year university doesn't. Um, you know, like many two-year schools, we're close to four-year schools. Um, we have a lot of students. So success, as defined, is degree completion. And so an associate of arts in particular, um, we ch- you know, that's a struggle. We have a lot of students who don't complete the so- associate of arts. But that was never their goal. They wanted to get rid of, they wanted to knock out some general education classes. They wanted to take psychology, not in a lecture hall with 200 students. They wanted to take composition in a small setting, chemistry. So they'll do a semester, a year, and then transfer to a four-year school that will take each of those classes one for one because they're one for one. And that student is successful. That student met their success metrics. 
Unfortunately, as an institution in the institutional la landscape, we don't necessarily get to claim that success. That's super interesting. Uh, let me let me go back for a second to the return on investment because I want to use an example, and then and then we'll we'll move forward. Uh, Longtime listeners will know that I maintain a website called philosophyisagreatmajor.com, and we have a lot of these statistics. And one of the interesting statistics is that the return on investment of a philosophy degree is actually the same as the return on investment in an engineering degree, because even though engineers will make higher salaries on average than a philosopher, they also have to spend significantly more money to get that than a philosopher does. And so when you do all of the math, the most obvious answer, the higher salary doesn't necessarily win, right? Because as we all know, right, at this point in time in American history, having no student loans or fewer student loans is a massive economic advantage. That same idea that you mentioned just a moment ago that, that the two-year school is the fastest path to home ownership. That's super fascinating because especially in a place like North Dakota where there is an affordable home housing market where it, it's just it's just it's all very different here than it is on say the, the the Northeast or the West Coast, you can have a really good life once you have a base of operations. And so I guess the question then becomes, is there a sense, an informal sense amongst your faculty, staff, and administrators about student success that takes into account the successful transfers, that takes into account the students that want to move on to another institution? Can you see that and say, not necessarily for the for the for the federal reports, but for your internal evaluations, look, we know that Bill, that Sally, that Juan, that Mohammed, that they got where they wanted to go. How much do you use those informal measures of success to guide your policy? Um, I would say we use them quite a bit, and some of them are national benchmarked assessments that or surveys that we give to students in their first year or their second year. We also have a homegrown survey we use to um, survey our students' experience. Um, and so we use those quite a bit to you know, benchmark where our students are meeting their goals. Um, and we also, um, you know, each one of our students meets in person with a professional advisor. It's how we're structured. And so we get a lot of informal feedback there where we know if those students are being successful, they've met their goals at the institution before they're leaving with or without the degree completion. Of course, we like the degree completion. And I would say, I think a lot of times, you know, well, that's the student's goal. There's a value that students, and they're 19, 20, you know, right. um, there's a value to completing an associate of arts that a lot of students don't recognize because their goal is to, you know, get a couple of semesters under their belt. Um, and those courses port very well with our regional partners, but a completed degree lives on a transcript forever and doesn't expire. And so, you know, sometimes like you take an anatomy and biology course, if you end up trying to take that into a program sometime later, it may not count. It won't be recent enough. But so there's a value to that degree completion. Um, it's not sometimes not recognized by the very students we serve. We work to communicate that. But in the end, they're individuals making the decisions that feel right to them. How in sync 
are the students' desires and the students' definitions of success with the institutional notion of success. I think at UND and I think at at most four-year schools, there is a general consensus of what success means, and it's getting a credential and moving on. Your circumstance is a bit more complicated. So how – does the long-term view of the professional staff – jibe with the, the, the view of the students, or is there a conflict there? I think the, those fit together well. Um, I think the, the, there's two places where, you know, that student success picture is more complicated. It's in that transfer area um, and then in the workforce development area. So um, our students who are enrolling in um, career and technical programs, health, building trades, auto mechanics, aviation maintenance, UAS maintenance. Um, unarmed aircraft. Un, unmanned. I'm sorry, unmanned right now. Not Some unarmed. of them are. They're very, very armed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unmanned aircraft. Yeah. Um, the, um, you know, those, I think they're the, the idea of success is the same. Degree completion and a job. Um, and that's the same in, for many of the, you know, university programs, right? That's what you're looking for. Um, on the workforce development side, we do a lot of um, what's called customized training or workforce development where an employer will have a cohort of employees that they want to train. And some of those will be in a um, group by themselves, a closed cohort. It's not open to anybody but those employees to enroll in. It may be credit-based, meaning they take um, specific courses that are in our curriculum, exist, and are credit-based, and after a while, they can add those up to a a certificate or a diploma, a degree. Um, In other instances, that type of development, that um, employer just has a particular, say, a particular welding process they want this group of um, employees to learn. And they'll complete that, and that's successful, um, but it may not fit into a credential. It may not fit into a degree. Um, and so, so there's, some, there's challenges and complexities there um, that perhaps don't exist universally. You know, I, I won't say they don't exist universally. They're, they're perhaps bigger touch points for the type of um, workforce development at a two-year school compared to workforce at a four-year. I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about student experience. And the first question I have, I alluded to in my initial comments. Northland Tech has two campuses, one Thief River Falls, one in East Grand Forks. Two hours down the road in in, in North Dakota uh, in Devil's Lake is Lake Region State College, which is also a two-year school. There are two-year schools elsewhere too. Do students pick the community college because – it's their local community college because they can drive there because it's, you know, across some invisible border where it's closer to go to, to Northland than it is to go to Lake Region? Or is there a, a kind of selection process that is more uh, choosy? I don't know. I don't know what the word would be. I think it depends on the student's yeah. goals. Um, again, the transfer student might just pick the one that's close. They can... St- live at home, rent-free, right? There's financial things driving it, whatever it is, right? Um, But there are certainly students who pick 
program or colleges for other reasons. Um, we, for example, attract several athletes from out of state, um, student athletes, um, Georgia, Florida, Puerto Rico. Um, and so just like any institution that has athletics, students come for the athletic program, for the coach. Um, we have, you know, a women's basketball team, for example, that's national champions. Um, and so you can have students select for those reasons. Um, you, you can have um, students select a community and technical college because of a one-of-a-kind one program. Um, one of our sister institutions has the only violin repair program in hmm. the nation. There are violin building programs at four-year institutions, um, but it's the only violin repair program. Northland, I'm proud to say, has the only unmanned aerial system, UAS, maintenance technician program in the nation. There is another one, but they focus more on the engineering side, not the technician side. Um, and, you know, in the background of that, I think another thing that people don't recognize, so our UAS program was built with um, Department of Labor federal grant dollars and maintained with National Science Foundation, um, ATE, um, which is Advanced Technology. Um, technological education dollars. Um, those are research dollars. Those original federal grants paid the faculty to create a curriculum, the first of its kind in the world, and design that curriculum for, to train these technicians to the um, specs needed by um, companies like Northrop Grumman and that research, which resulted in that curriculum, lives in an open educational resource, meaning it's free for anybody to access as a curriculum out there because it's federally funded. And that's one of the rules around NSF funding, National Science Foundation funding. Now, I have to ask you a question that I don't care about at all, but I know I, know I can think of various people who will. What division is your basketball team in? D3. D3, okay. <laughs> so, and, you know, and then and not all, right? We're, we're non-scholarship um, okay. D3 school. Uh, so, and there so, are scholarship ones. All right, so you sports people get off my back. <laughs> um, <laughs> do – I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question, and it's still about the student experience. Colleges, especially elite colleges and liberal arts colleges – have reputations of being very liberal and, and very focused on, on activism and you have to use your pronouns correctly and you have to do all of these things. Is there the same sort of, of, of sense amongst to your schools that, you know, you go, to, you go to school to become a liberal and so your parent, you disagree with your parents on Thanksgiving, right? Is there that sense or... Or maybe they're more inherently conservative or maybe there isn't that political culture at all. And, and let me take a step back and tell you why I'm asking this question. The open enrollment aspect and the diverse population and the English language learners and the, and the non-traditional age students, it makes your college much more representative of the pluralistic democracy that we live in. Right. That, yes, the current um, power systems are such that the people who have in power have a say and the people who don't, don't. Your institution seems like a place where the powerless can get access to that power, where the diverse populations get their entrance into the larger democracy. 
And if that's the case, then practicing the political process, having political opinions, arguing with one another about about positions and policy, this has a place. And one of the things that undergraduates tend to do when they engage in this activism is they're mimicking the larger world in part because they, for personal reasons, for social justice reasons, for whatever, want to make the jump into influencing the culture. Because there's such a diverse population that's, that, that's, let's say, moving into the ability to have some power and have some say, do you have that same political culture or is that reserved for other kinds of schools? We have the political culture. You know, I'll, I'll speak about it at the student level. Um, one of the things I would say I'm proud of of Northland is we have a student senate for a rural college five-hour drive from where the statewide meetings are often held. We have a high participation of our student leadership and state-level student leadership. And so there, there's that side of it. Um, as a faculty, I had students who wanted to do philosophy. I created a club called the Thought Club. We did philosophy. Um, you know, so like I think any institution where there's a student interest to drive student clubs, there's faculty to support that. You know, um, we, have club, we have a pride club, for example. We, you know, we touch all of those areas. Um, I indicated earlier, you know, for um, racial ethnicity, we reflect twice our community's population. Um, compared, you know, for first-generation students, we're, you know, much higher than a four-year institution. Are we reflective of the community? I'm not sure there um, of that answer I could find out. But um, when you look at those areas, you know, the, the social political spectrum, we're just a reflection of our, you know, our community. And in our case, that's students from the region, but students from the nation. Is, is there... And, the same, and I'll say yeah. the same with the staff, of right. course. Is there... <laughs> I don't know how to ask this except in the stupidest ways. Is there racial tension? Is there the same divides? Or is there something about the culture of, of the community that since you have larger percentage of uh, people of color, say, than the Grand Forks community, that, that there's, there's more acceptance rather than less acceptance? Or is it just, it's just a mirror of the community and if things go bad outside, things go bad inside? Um, I think that um, I'll say my institution's been really fortunate that um, we've had a positive culture, you know, through the last few years. Um, as an institution, we took steps um, in after the killing of George Floyd to make sure that our students understood that this was a welcoming institution. Um, that messaging to, was to all students, um, and so. You know, absolutely. We have a criminal justice program. Um, we are aligning our curriculum to, be, you know, to train our graduates to meet the state standards. Um, we, we always have. Um, you know, is there tension in those conversations? Absolutely. Um, but is there, it's, I think, the same as any institution of higher learning. The intent is to create good people who are educated and make good decisions. Good. I'm really glad you said that, not just because I think it's good, but, but because it leads then to this question, which is one of the central tenets of liberal arts education is 
character education, virtue education, ethical education, be good people, be good citizens, uh, be good human beings. And, and in any school, there is this tension between this liberal arts goal and the vocational goal or the certification goal or the, the student who just wants to take upper-level classes in their major and get it quickly. How do you at Northland navigate the creation of – the cultivation of humanity, to steal Martha Nussbaum's phrase, with the, the, the more vocational, more technical, more precise education that you guys do so well? So um, I guess if we're thinking about that on the student experience on the curricular side, right, Um, our one-year diplomas and certificates, um, so two-semester course of study, all have a general education requirement in them. Um, It's a transfer course, and it's a course on um, that it's called um, human relations, and it transfers within a communications area. And so within that, though, that human relations class, it's a um, – the the course itself is a cross between communications and cultural awareness. Um, And so there's, you know, some cultural communications being taught. What does cultural awareness mean in this context? Um, So that the the, the students are being exposed to learner outcomes around – diversity and inclusion. Okay. And in that particular class, they would be not global, but um, within the United States. Um, within our curriculum, we separate out a global diversity versus a within the United States okay. diversity, um, part of our state structure. Um, and so th- they're meeting, th- they're, the goal there is really to help round out that student who really just came to, you know, study a trade. Um, on a two-year program, a, a diploma, they will have a, you know, probably another course or two rounding out you know, that type of the person. If um, you, people have heard me say something like an associate of applied science, that's a particular associate level degree. And in that, um, a fourth of the credits, a fourth of the 60 credits, it might go more than 60, but then um, a minimum of 15 of those credits is um, are in what we call the Minnesota Transfer Curriculum, our system. They're general education courses across general education levels that are required in any associate degree. Um, associate of Science is 50%, 30 credits. And so by the very nature of the de- curriculum construction, students get that type of training. I'm going to ask a question, and it's a ridiculous question. And it's totally unfair. And I'll ask the question in philosophical terms first. And when I ask it, you're going to laugh. And then I'll translate it into this context. And the question I'm going to ask is, can virtue be taught? <laughs> so, Of course. Yeah, okay. So, so, but, so here's, here, here's, here's the question. There is some sense that, you know, we can teach students in an ethics class, but we can't teach them to be ethical, right? We can teach students about pluralism, but we can't teach them to be tolerant or multicultural or celebratory. Do you think in your experience that you actually are able to round out these students in the way that you're describing? Do you think that 
you can really teach students in general and at your institution uh, to be good people, to be good citizens. I mean, can can you teach that kind of thing or can you only expose people to circumstances and let them figure it out for themselves? Um, I think it can be taught. And I think there's empirical evidence that shows it. Um, this is one of the things I learned teaching medical ethics courses to medical students going into um, associate level programs. Um, in doing that research and reading, um, there, is, there are studies of decision making within healthcare settings around the ethical issues. And what those studies show is that students who have been exposed to um, professional ethics courses are less likely to make a bad decision in practice in the field. They are more likely, you know, they're less likely to succumb to peer pressure. Say you're working in a nursing home that has a bad practice of not charting something. They're less likely to become, succumb to that peer pressure to fall into that bad culture that can lead to bad outcomes for the residents, the patients, and more likely to bring it to the attention of appropriate people to um, right that ship. Um, and so I think that that type of training is very critical, and I think there's studies and evidence that shows in professional settings, and I have to extrapolate that to personal settings, that, yeah, um, the exposure has learning behind it that has positive outcomes. Can virtue be taught? Yes. Is there a, is there a Northland alumni culture? Is there a sense that students come back the way that they'll do for many other schools and they'll talk about their time there and they'll talk about what they learned and they have spe- uh, favorite professors and, of course, you ask them for money? <laughs> and I mean, is, is there the same sort of thing? There is. We have a foundation. Um, and it's, um, I think at two-year schools, um, this area is perhaps less well-developed um, because the the nature of the institutions there were, um, and funding models for them, um, two-year schools, frankly, weren't in a position to have to have foundations as early in our development as universities. And so, um, but yeah, we, we do have a foundation. We... Um, work now to develop that culture. Um, it's interesting, you know, w- different institutions are at different paths in that, and it's true across the board regardless, you know, up to doctorate-level institutions. Um, and even, you know, within an institution like ours, um, some of that, some of the strength there is um, on the campus where we host the athletic programs. Um, y- you develop more of that um, culture of affinity to come back and remember the days for that. But I'll say on both campuses, um, we have students who, you know, will come back for a different degree, um, and they choose us to come back to. And so there's that part of the alumni experience, too. Do you think that, um, do you think that those students who use Northland Tech as a path to a different institution uh, and get, let's say, their bachelor's somewhere else— does that bachelor's eclipse their associate? That's a challenge for two-year schools and the fundraising from alumni, I think, in general. I think um, you tend it's, – it's human – and I think it's human nature, right? It, 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 you, we can create the experience 
and develop that. But um, there's a human nature where you're going to go back to that experience or that last place. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll stop there. I lost my train of thought. No, on a I, I, un- I, I understand. You know, the, the, the terminal degree, the, 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 you can really be a, uh, appreciative of the first half of the race, but you're going to celebrate the finish line is basically right, what it right, is. Right, right, right. That's so, a way of capturing that human nature. So, so I guess the, the last question I want to ask, which may not be the last question, but the last question I want to ask is, is the question of – the episode, because I think that you would be able to articulate it better than I, what are community colleges for? What role do they play and why do they play that? Um, they play a critical role in um, providing the education for the people who really um, are the glue of society in many respects, um, the technicians, the, um, in some instances, um, the terminal degrees in certain fields. Um, they play a critical role for social mobility. Um, one thing we haven't talked about, um, and this varies a bit um, from state and system to system, but pretty universally in this nation now, um, Two-year schools are critical in concurrent enrollment where um, – fancy term – but where um, high school students take courses and get the college credit. Right. That is transcripted, counted on our college, and we put that on our transcripts. Um, that's a huge part of the student base that we serve. Um, and that is in some ways because for those high school students, that's often free college. That, um, what that means for social mobility is absolutely critical um, and plays a big role for that aspect of higher education in our country. We know a lot of students in these dual credit programs, uh, but fewer in North Dakota because Minnesota has a very, very rich uh, yes. program of, of high school students in, in community colleges. And, and it's – I wish North Dakota had it. Uh, why – why is community college so much cheaper? Um, I'm not sure because we're constantly fighting up against the budget wall. <laughs> but that's higher ed in general. Um, you know, I think in, in some ways, um, it, it, if you walk across not all but many community college campuses, um, the physical plant, the physical infrastructure is not as great. So there isn't as much need to support there. Um, my two campuses consist um, – there are some small buildings, but they consist of one primary building. Good, 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 good. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you, but, but you're saying this thing, and through the entire process, I've wanted to ask you this question, but I feel stupid asking it, and now you've given me, you've given me the, <laughs> the, the permission. Almost every community college I've ever been to has been not only one building, but often like some sort of round or square building that you can do laps in. North Dakota is really unique in that its community colleges are not that. Why? What's going on there structurally, institutionally? You know, and and, and in the in the show Community, you you, you get that too. Uh, I can't remember what there's a there's a, a Minnesota State school. It's, it, it might be Marshall. I can't remember. That was a two-year school and that was a four-year school. I went and gave a lecture there and I can't remember what it is. But, and, and again, you can do laps. Is there a pedagogical reason? Is there a real reason for that? Or is it just some weird sort of idiosyncrasy? I'm not, I, don't, I don't know. I think um, 
in some instances, um, you know, so like within the Minnesota system, um, the technical side came out of what were called Area Vocational Technical Institutes, AVTIs. Um, those were actually affiliated with high schools originally, um, in contrast to the community college. Um, in, yeah, they merge, and they merge mission. And, um, and often, in some instances, I think that building structure has carried over from that. And so um, there might be some history of the development culturally within the nation and where those schools came from. Um, I think in some instances it's funding. Um, you know, many schools... Um, are non-residential, meaning we don't have dorms. Um, nor, one of our campuses is completely non-residential. It's a full commuter campus. Um, the other campus, we don't have dorms, but our foundation has student housing that they run. Um, and so there's, it's separate from the institution, and it's not part of our campus proper, but it serves our students through the foundation. And so those aspects of community colleges, I think, lead, lead to that different design. Um, I'm sure there's more there um, that I'm just not aware of. It, it, it feels to me that there's something inherently supportive about that style of building where you feel protected, you feel every, you can easily get from one place to another, that you don't have to run across campus, you don't have to put on your coat, that, 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 that it, it feels more community oriented to me and more self-contained but but you know that's that that's just off the top of my head is there anything that you feel we missed is there any last thoughts that you have about this that you think is super important to communicate either conceptually or 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 practically about the two-year schools that that don't get the attention they deserve um well, I think this has been a great chance for people to understand, better understand um, community technical colleges. Um, I think for me personally, the baseline is the student, um, it's, and it's the student we serve. I said a little bit earlier, you know, my experience um, in recognizing, um, you know, I taught at Big Ten universities. I taught at private selective universities. I taught at rural private, rural public universities. Um, when I realized my favorite student was a first-generation student who was maybe 25, had bumped a couple of walls to get into my classroom, and actually expected from some philosopher that they were going to learn something they would use and work in their day-to-day -day life working, um, it challenged me, and it gave me a respect for that student. Some of that may be my own personal background, but... Um, in the end, that's who it's about. It's about um, being that bridge for students and recognizing that in many ways our students are way more diverse than um, universities by our very nature. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and having this conversation because, as I said to you off the air, this is not a conversation I've seen anywhere. And I think that the community college as an institution, does not get the respect it deserves and does not, isn't even fully understood. And I'm guilty of that myself. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on Why. It has been my pleasure, Jack. You have been listening to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life with Brian Huschel and Jack Russell Weinstein, and I will be back with a few thoughts right after this. 
Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Brian Huschel from Northland Community and Technical College about the roles of community college, about the role of two-year schools, and the way in which the rationality of these institutions work and, and the cultural place of the institutions. And I thought it was super fascinating. And one of the things that really came out or that I was reminded of at the end was this phrase essential workers, right? When, when, the, when the pandemic first hit, there was a lot of conversation about how the people who were the most essential to our culture are the people who got the least attention. And, and it was the delivery people and it was the food workers and it was the people who, who kept the society running when all of the office workers or other folks stayed at home and how these essential workers were at a higher risk of COVID and of complications and ultimately of death, even though they got paid the least. And I kept thinking about that because of the things that – the examples that Brian kept giving, right? We have the pilots, but Northland Tech trains the mechanics. We have the, the doctors, but the respiratory technicians are coming out of Northland Tech, the physical therapists, the assistants who work with the people who, who, who bend their legs, right, and who, who have, are, are the first responders, so to speak, in all these things come from Northland Tech. And so there's something analogous going on that the people who are the most connected, the most necessary, the most – the glue that holds our society together, to use one of Brian's phrases, are the people who get the least respect, the least attention, and sometimes even the least support. The students that I get that transfer from Northland Tech are super exciting to have because they have a background and they're excited about school and they've chosen to go to school themselves as opposed to just going out of high school. And the longer I've been here, the more I felt an affinity with Brian's school, Northland Tech, because it's, 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 it's down the road, but also the integrated nature of these schools. Ultimately, there is a core philosophical question, and that is, what does an institution of education look like? And the answer is not just one thing. If we tell our kids, if we tell our students, if we tell our citizens that you're only a success if you go to one type of school, not only are you leading them astray, but you're making a whole spectrum of successes invisible. Community colleges are places of success. We now have to make them places of respect. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Please don't forget to go to whyradioshow.org, click donate, and help us continue with this program. But whether you do or not, I thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you.
Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album, Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>